It's Time for Truth, a ministry of Truth Family Bible Church in Middleton, Idaho. It's Time for Truth exists to glorify God through the edification of His saints in our local church and for the benefit of the church around the world. I am your host, Pastor Danny Steinmeier. Well, welcome once again, everyone, to another episode of the podcast, uh, wherever you may be and whenever you may be listening. We are glad, once again, that you have uh, made this podcast a part of your day. Uh, it is a, a blustery day here uh, as I'm recording this. Um, I'm um, looking at a new view out the window, a new podcast location. As many of you know, our podcast situation has, has changed a bit, and so I am flying solo and at a new location. So uh, this is a little bit of a different format, a different uh, environment for me. So just getting used to a number of things. And hopefully you can uh, bear with me as uh, I think this is a bit of a challenging thing for me. You know, I I listened to Rush Limbaugh growing up where he was uh, a solo outfit for, uh, for his career. And of course, there's other great podcasters out there, um, John Harris and others who are able to uh, do their podcast uh, by themselves. I don't have anybody that I'm talking to, so this is a little bit of a different situation where uh, I don't have someone else to play off of, and and so I'm just flying by myself here today, so looking forward to trying something new, and hopefully we'll, it'll, it'll be easy enough to listen to and won't be too bad. Hopefully I'll do all right, and uh, hopefully I'll get better, and, and we'll get used to this a new format. In the future, we do, of course, continue want to have other guests in with me to do interviews or just to have other uh, folks that are, are going to provide help and content and, and conversation in this format. So we're looking forward to those opportunities as well. But uh, to, you just get me today. So that's the, that's the plan that we're going with. Today, I do want to address the Alistair Begg controversy that has been going on for a couple of weeks now. It has become a very big deal. I saw that yesterday, actually, Fox News picked up on this story uh, on on its national tabloid site. Fox News is pretty much a tabloid now. Um, And it's just a, uh, it isn't just the tempest in the teacup as Alistair has tried to characterize it. Uh, There has been a ton of videos and podcasts that have sought to cover this issue. Many of them do a really good job. I've seen a number of different responses. Um, Some of them, I can't get into all of them, but uh, many of them are are really giving it a thorough and careful, thoughtful critique. And uh, we're uh, just wanting to do that here as well. So I'm just really encouraged that there have been just a lot of very good responses and critiques. Uh, but I'm not satisfied to just let other people online uh, just shepherd you while I stay silent. Um, I, I think it's really important that on these major issues, especially this type of thing, I think it's important that you hear from your shepherd on this. And so that's um, what I'm wanting to do. I, I don't want you just to have online voices. I want you to have clarity as to where your pastors stand. And so 
Uh, we have, of course, shared some resources. I haven't been silent. We have talked about this recently at church. We have shared some resources uh, online and some conversations um, in our communication app for church. But but I think it's necessary really to speak out clearly on issues like this uh, to all of you, because I, I am a shepherd of the whole flock. I want to communicate to all of you my thoughts on the subject in a timely way. And if others are benefited outside of our church, we will be grateful for that as well. Also, I want to let you know that I have also written an article about this for TruthScript. Uh, just a quick plug for TruthScript.com. Uh, it is an online resource for conservative Christian articles. It is designed to be a competitor to the Gospel Coalition site that has drifted steadily to the left and is no longer a faithful resource. And so I was invited to be on the board of TruthScript, and our aim is to provide the average Christian in the pew with content that embodies a conservative, faithful, and biblical worldview. That means we are not seeking to have academic papers filled with technical language, all your Greek and Hebrew exegesis, etc. There's a place for that, but we want them to be faithful and readable and enjoyable to read so that you will benefit from thoughtful Christians who are writing for the glory of God, and uh, that these can be trusted resources. doesn't mean perfect, doesn't mean you will agree with everything that is written on there, but uh, we we are not wanting to have that leftward uh, drift in our content, and so we are wanting to um, promote good content, good faithful articles. And so I've written a number of articles for truthscript.com, and this one on the Alistair Begg controversy is titled uh, Begging Pastor Begg. Uh, I'm hoping that by the time this podcast is released, that the article will be up there. I submitted it late last night. This is, what's today? Today's Wednesday afternoon. I submitted it late on Tuesday night. I know it's being read and in the editing process today. Uh, I checked not too long before this podcast. It hadn't been posted yet. So I'm hoping it will be uh, up there relatively soon. And so um, hopefully by the time this podcast is uh, posted. The article will be out there as well, so you can also check that out. But for today, uh, I'm wanting to give a longer form treatment of the subject. Um, Some of the content will overlap a little bit, but an article is limited to being under 1,500 words, and so there's just a a limit to what I can say, uh, a direction I can go. I can't get all into some of the detail that I think is valuable. And so today, I wanted to address this controversy with Pastor Begg in a little bit of a longer format. And the reason why this is a big deal is because the subject is a big deal that Christians need to have clarity about if they're going to be faithful to Christ and Scripture in their lives, in their families, where they live. Um, This is an important applicational issue and concern that has theological, of course, underpinnings uh, as to the foundation for living. So we cannot just go and do whatever feels right to us. We, We need to have our actions grounded in the right principles and the truth of Scripture. And in doing that, I want us to look at a few passages of Scripture. Uh, Pastor Begg chose a particular text to preach his self-defense and counterattack sermon from, and so I want to respond to some of what I believe is his poor handling of the text. Uh, also to talk about what he did in that sermon. I, I think what he did was ill-advised and, um, and concerning. And if you haven't listened to it, I do welcome you to listen to that first and then come back here if you like. This is not going to be a a formal sermon critique, um, but I'm not shying away from you hearing from Pastor Begg himself. Um, This will be a full critique, hopefully, of the 
the big controversy, the big issue. It does include, though, his defense, uh, his um, his formal comments that he gave in a sermon that he gave on this past Sunday night. And so I will be addressing some of that, but it's not going to be... I, I saw a, a response video. Uh, the guy was doing a fantastic job, and he was going really bit by bit through the the message and discussing it and critiquing it and did a really a really great job with it. I will not be piecing that uh, out altogether. I just want to address the entire issue. But I will see if Mark can put a link to that message with the podcast. But either way, the title of the message is Compassion Versus Condemnation. And it is on the front page of parksidechurch.com, so you can go there as well and find it. Uh, but I found his choice of a text to be interesting, and so in my response, I do plan to bring up some other texts that are actually uh, relevant, or maybe even more relevant to the issue, and the council, and where Pastor Beg has gone wrong. And then I want to address the issue at the end of how we think about Pastor Beg's ministry now, and um, just have some hopefully compassionate uh, <laughs> response as well. Uh, through uh, the end of this uh, mess, this, this podcast. Well, let's go ahead and dive right in. First, I want to talk about the controversy itself. What is the issue? Uh, well, the issue stems from a several months old uh, uh, recording of Pastor Beg giving an interview uh, that was related to a book that he has written. And in this interview, he brings up the example, and he does this voluntarily on his own. He does so as, in his mind, uh, as a good example of what he was talking about in the book. Uh, we don't really know what the book is, um, but the uh, this is his positive example of what he means and what he's getting at. And in this example, he brings up a woman who had written a letter, and then that turned into his responding to her in a phone call. And this uh, letter was a grandmother uh, asking about uh, a burden on her heart, which was the reality of a grandchild. And that's kind of a funny thing. Is it grandson or granddaughter? Because I've heard both. And, um, and so there's, there's some you know, question as to, is the grandchild the, the total subject of the issue? Because this involves transgenderism, and the, and the grandmother is, is just burdened by the reality that their grandchild is uh, getting married and there is transgenderism involved. So we don't know more details really than that, but uh, clearly this is a problematic um, situation, a problematic marriage, if it even is a marriage, um, and we'll get into more of that, that detail in a little bit. But that's the, that's the issue, the, the scenario that he brought up. And the controversy comes from his counsel that he communicated, um, that he gave to this woman. And his counsel was that she ultimately, in his view, should attend this transgender wedding and to bring a gift. And that advice um, certainly struck a chord and has become the center of controversy now for about two weeks. And, uh, and so that's the that's the thing that has been going viral and has been responded to and the concern that many uh, conservative Christians have had issue with was his counsel and advice that a Christian grandmother would attend a 
uh, a transgender wedding for their grandchild. Well, a couple of things here. We need to talk a little bit about the nature of transgenderism and homosexuality because that's, of course, it brings the, the center of the controversy um, uh, out in the open. You know, trans, transgenderism and homosexuality, the nature of it is that it is against God's order and design, his purpose for humanity, his purpose for human relationships. Transgenderism dealing with the issue of identity, but beyond identity, uh, some of the transgender uh, stuff gets into actual seeking to change uh, a physical gender. So it gets into uh, elements of anatomy and biology and genitalia, and uh, and those are the things that um, can be in play. But it certainly gets to whether or not a person can change their gender or identify as a as a different gender than they are in biological reality. And then, of course, thrown into that mix is the issue of homosexuality, because in in a transgendered supposed wedding situation, it very well could be a homosexual union uh, with one person perhaps playing the um, pretend in the area of the opposite sex when in fact they are the same sex as the person they are um, getting to. So obviously this is a terrible uh, situation of immorality and overt wickedness that this uh, poor um, grandchild has gotten into and this poor loving grandmother is concerned about. It also brings up the issue regarding the nature of what marriage is and what a wedding is. A, a, a marriage, we'll get into some definitions, some details in a little bit, but that's really why there's controversy, uh, is what is marriage? Is this a marriage? How does that relate to the wedding? When you understand what those things actually are and then what is actually being proposed to be happening, it, it of course brings up concerns and issues of fidelity, of what it means to be supportive, um, what it means to be in opposition, um, and, and so forth. This controversy also gets at the nature of what it means to attend a wedding, and um, we're going to get into that. What does it mean to attend a wedding? What are you doing? Are you saying something if you are attending, even if you don't say anything um, uh, in terms of verbally? So we'll talk about that, but that gets to the nature of this controversy as well. Also, the nature of the current cultural moment. Uh, this is a, a big problem, and this is why a lot of people have concern for Pastor Beg, is he doesn't seem to understand what time it is in relationship to what is happening in the culture and what the culture is demanding. Because this appears to be a, a significant capitulation to the culture that wants believers to bow to cultural pressure, wants believers to uh, accept and not only accept, but also celebrate the debauchery and immorality and the corruption of a culture that has rejected God. And so uh, we are, are being painted as the bad guys. And uh, this, um, this advice appears to be the kind of advice that you would give if you were trying to avoid being the bad guy. And, uh, and so this is, uh, this is an appeasement and, a, and, and something that, that gives those who are opposed to Christ and to his word and his people, um, a credibility and a, an acceptance that normally we would think that Christians should not be accepting of. And so we're going to talk about each of those things um, in this episode. 
The first thing, or maybe it's not the first thing, but uh, a thing that I want to get to is the problem first with his counseling approach. Pastor Begg said that he was, in his message on Sunday night, uh, that he was concerned about the relationship of the grandmother and the granddaughter above all else. Uh, Above the situation itself, he was concerned about counseling her, helping her to maintain a relationship, uh, to save a relationship with her grandchild, whom she loved dearly. This is an emotional situation, a tearful one that he described the the grandmother as having. And it gets also to the issue of um, what is compassion? That's where Pastor Begg really wanted to center what he was trying to do. He was centered on the subject of compassion. And really, we need to understand first and foremost, what is compassion? And it, it really is a compound of love and sorrow. Uh, compassion is painful sympathy, where you have a pain or regret on behalf of someone who is suffering. And that suffering may be physical suffering, such as poverty um, or injury or sickness or calamity. It is, of course, appropriate for a believer to have compassion on someone uh, who is going through a difficult time as part of the experience of their life. Um, and that can be something that happens to them, and but it's something that happens um, in, their, in their life in the body. There's also suffering, though, that may be spiritual suffering, Spiritual suffering may also affect our bodies, but the spiritual suffering, suffering where someone's sin, their choices, and what they are doing to themselves, it's causing them harm and may lead them to greater spiritual harm and even total judgment. To have compassion on someone who is a lost sinner, uh, who is living a life of rebellion, of unrepentant sin, their life very well is going to be a wreck and a mess. And there is appropriateness for having compassion, a love that is sorrowful for someone who is in either of those situations where uh, of no fault of their own or just the circumstances of life that they're in or of fault of their own where their choices have led them to have great spiritual and physical and even relational harm done. Uh, because of their sin, and um, that's where compassion comes in, and there certainly is uh, a need for that. Compassion is a godly trait, and it is rooted in the heart, and when you have the opportunity, compassion should lead to action on behalf of the one you have compassion for. That's where that's what love really is all about, is, the, um, is, is to take action on behalf of the one uh, that you love, uh, the object of love should receive uh, your best actions, and there is truth that corresponds with that. We'll get into that also in a little bit. But then the issue becomes, what is the appropriate action to take or to not take on behalf of someone that I have love and sorrow for? Can someone with compassion simply do whatever they feel like, or can, can they do whatever the suffering person wants them to do? Well, of course not, because love is from God and true love flows from knowing and loving God, he is the one who defines what is loving and his wisdom determines what is truly best, truly loving for the suffering person. And again, that brings about a lot of concern about the the direction of the counseling that Pastor Begg had given. 
And it seems that it is not particularly oriented towards what is truly loving. He is focused on uh, really an emotional bond and a relational situation, and instead has chosen a, a direction of action that doesn't seem to be in accordance with God's direction and teaching regarding love, and um, so it brings about a an additional concern. And emotions, and of course, family relationships, um, you know, are very important, and in this case, seem to take precedence over an understanding and an appreciation for the depth of the issue and the sin that was involved. And so he was saying that he was wanting to help a grandmother not lose her grandchild. And so uh, Pastor Begg prioritized his emotions about what would be compassionate in order to maintain some semblance of relationship with a grandchild who is suffering God's wrath because of her sinful choices and her his or her rejection of God. And so he chose to manipulate a relationship by surprising, is the idea that he was wanting to give. He wanted the, the grandchild to be surprised by the actions of the grandmother. And so in so doing, manipulate a relationship with a rebellious grandchild in hopes that a relenting of opposition to their sin would soften the grandchild's heart and open up future relationship. The, the hope is that there would be some measure of surprise to see grandma show up at a transgendered wedding that she has communicated that she is against, but then she shows up anyway. And this surprise is supposed to be that which communicates something of value to a sinner that creates a positive relationship. And in taking the application that he did, Pastor Begg didn't seem to have an understanding of the effect the gospel has upon families. And I think a relevant text uh, that he is not applying to the situation, certainly he is aware of it, and I'm sure he's preached through it. But in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 39, I want you to hear what Jesus says. He says, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. And so Pastor Begg prioritized compassion over separation, and what has happened here is that this particular passage in Matthew chapter 10, it reveals that when the gospel enters a home and the lives of individuals, that it has an effect on them that may create a separation with other family members who are hostile to that message, hostile to Christ and to the Lordship of Christ. That family members would be pit against each other when Christ enters a home. And Jesus gives uh, several different relationship um, dynamics, a, a father and a son, a daughter and a mother, and then even goes into the level of in-laws, and so uh, other extended family. And 
the 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 issue there is is not that the these are the only relationships that Jesus is saying might be divided. He's pointing out representatively here that the division in a family can be deep and it can be wide. And even though it doesn't mention a grandchild and a grandmother or grandfather, uh, it certainly is understood. It certainly is to be recognized as one of those family relationship dynamics that can be divided and separated because of the entrance of what Christ has brought uh, into that household. And so Jesus says, I, I did not come to bring peace between family members, peace on earth. Uh, ultimately, that sword will divide even some of the most close relationships. And that's what Jesus said he came to do. And yet what we find in Pastor Begg's counsel and advice is the ignoring of the reality that that, was, is, that relationship between the grandmother and the grandchild was supposed to be divided, separated, because the grandmother has Christ and the grandchild does not. The grandmother acknowledges that Jesus Christ is Lord and he has his word, given his word that tells us how we are to think and how we are to live, what is truth and what is morality, what is a boy and a girl, and what is marriage. And so in seeking to bring peace, he uh, laid aside the sword that was supposed to be there that Jesus had already brought. And that's a, that's a concern for the way he went about that. He prioritized, again, compassion over separation. And he demonstrated a faulty view of compassion in the first place, I believe. He, he turned it into closeness, that compassion means maintaining a relationship, and it also looks like acceptance. And that's what he thought would be valuable and shocking, was to have that type of that version of compassion demonstrated by this grandmother. Also, he doesn't seem to have a place for the doctrine of separation or believes that it is opposed to separation. And this is a, another important concern, and I'm really grateful that uh, John MacArthur has done a lot of talking about and preaching on this subject of separation. It is an important one um, to have properly balanced and understood. It can be difficult, but uh, it is a clear teaching in the Scripture. The first part of this doctrine of separation has to do with separation from the world in your heart. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. So that speaks about, again, your, your heart, your devotion, your dedication. Beware of, of loving the world and its things. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. And so the first part of the doctrine of separation has to do with our hearts and our desires and where we have our devotion placed. It is to be with God, and it is not to be with the world, to have the world's acceptance, to have the world's approval, 
to have the world's um, accolades, to have the and then to have the world's things. That we must have God as our God. We've been going through the Ten Commandments. He must have first place in everything, and uh, and, and we have to be um, dedicated to Him in our hearts first and foremost. And so that's an important element of separating ourselves and our hearts from the love of the world. The second part of this doctrine is separation from worldly entanglements. This is really found especially well in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and in verses 14 through 18. It says, do not be bound, literally unequally yoked, together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So the first one has to do with our hearts. The second one has to do with uh, uh, properly applying our hearts in the way in which we uh, have relationships out in the world. This has to do with things such as business arrangements. This has to do with things like marriage, and this is extended by Paul in 1 Corinthians, where he explicitly states that a believer is not to marry an unbeliever. That is being unequally yoked. And he draws on this from the principle that we are the temple of the living God. And so this is an important subject that we have to be wise about as Christians when it comes to both individual and our organizational uh, uh, entanglements or how we bind each other, bind ourselves to one another in organizations. We have to be careful that we are partnering with uh, fellow believers, and we are not to be in partnership. Um, these are ways in which we are bound together formally, contractually or covenantally, with uh, with those who are not believers. And it's a very clear passage. It's not that difficult to uh, understand what is being said. Now we have to then analyze our specific situations to uh, understand the proper application of that. And so there's the an, uh, heart separation from the love of the world. Uh, then there is the uh, separation from worldly entanglements. The third part of this doctrine is separation from unrepentant sinners in your family. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. It says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. So we have a specific situation in the church um, in Corinth, and it is of a uh, extreme, it is of a gross nature. It's it's just Im straight up immoral, and uh, it, it's a wild kind of situation that is um, very shameful, and he's having an issue with the way in which the church at Corinth dealt with it. And he says, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. 
This is, the, again, the doctrine of separation. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. And so the three areas of the doctrine of separation, separation in the heart, separation from worldly entanglements, and separation from unrepentant sinners in your family. And so Paul is, is being very clear here that the church had tolerated, they had allowed uh, this unrepentant sinner to remain in their sin and in the church. And so it was the wrong kind of compassion to allow that, and the right kind of compassion not only is, and this is another, this is a huge thing about Pastor Big's uh, counsel, not only is it the proper compassion to separate from them for the sake of the one they are separating from, the goal is their salvation, the goal is for them to be saved, but there's also a key element here. See, when this grandmother goes to this transgendered wedding, let's assume for a minute that there are, hmm, let's say, other family members, maybe other family members who are living more obediently, uh, who are Christians or who are um, walking in moral precepts. And when you become accepting of other people's sin and you tolerate it and you um, maintain a, a positive relationship, allowing that to go on, what Paul is saying here is that is a, an influence, a leaven, that leavens the whole rest of the family that there is influence and that there is consequence that, that happens there. And so this gets into issues of church discipline. We'll talk about some of these principles here a little bit further in a minute. But this gets into one of the purposes for discipline. It's not just about the person who is um, in unrepentant sin. It's also, it's also for the sake of the rest of the family. It is for the purity of your family. And you can't just look at the, the sinner and look at them with compassion so as to accept them or turn a blind eye, because when you are doing that, you are also having a, an impact. You are also signaling to the rest of your family how you view sin and what they are able to get away with, because uh, they very well could get involved in the same sin, and now you have a a large or, or, or other sin, but you now you have a bigger problem that has affected the whole family. And so I think it's a short-sighted thing to simply think about compassion for uh, one wayward child, especially if you have others. If you have other grandchildren, you have other children, you have other family that is uh, looking at your words and your actions and um, taking note, and those have, those have influence 
And we, we can't be blind to that. And so Paul is being very clear, you need to separate yourself from those who are unrepentant in sin in relationship to your family. Now, why did I say family <clears throat> and not church? Well, it is because I am arguing that the principle is the same. The sword that divides family members that Jesus talked about is the same sword that divides the church family, and that is the lordship of Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. So when we're talking about people who have received the gospel, they have received the gospel which is about the lordship of Jesus Christ. It is bowing to his authority. It is receiving his kingship. And when you have a lord, when you have a king, a master, that means he is the one who dictates the terms of life. He is the one who sets the laws. He is the one who identifies what is um, the standard by which his citizens, his people, live by. And, uh, and then he enforces those laws, right? So the, the idea here is that a, the lordship of Christ uh, in, a, in, in a home makes a tangible difference in how the people in that home live and behave. And, and so in this situation, the sword has come, and family members are divided. And that happens in the church. The church is also, there's a reason why the church is also referred to as a family, because it has the uh, similar resemblance and parallels and so forth with a um, biological family. Uh, there's all those things are important to understand here, and we'll get into more some of those principles, and we'll see really actually in the example that Pastor Beg gave himself, but he's not really seeing clearly. And that is Luke 15. Uh, the very passage that Pastor Beg used as his self-defense text on Sunday night um, speaks of the prodigal son. That was the main emphasis that he turned to. Uh, he uh, went out, that is the prodigal. Uh, he left because he had the world. He, he had loose living in his heart. See, the prodigal loved the world and the things in the world. That's where his heart was, and he couldn't, and this is important, uh, he couldn't have have stayed, he, he couldn't have the world and stay in the family. That's why he left. He left because he had not separated his heart from the world and have it devoted to his father. He had to leave because of where his heart was, and so separation took place. He, he couldn't have stayed because he couldn't live out that lifestyle, and so he left in order to do that. The loose living is the, the phrase there. And then um, the, the young prodigal um, went out from his father's house. There was a separation. But listen, there was, it was more than a separation. The young prodigal was dead to the family. I've heard it said that a Middle Eastern family uh, would have had a kind of funeral for the lost son who rejected the family, uh, who went off to live a godless life. And that recognition that this was severe separation is actually affirmed in the text by Luke chapter 15, verses 22 and 24 through 24. Listen. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For 
this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. The son was dead to the father. They, they were separated by the son who went off, who left the family, rejected the family, rejected the values of the family, rejected ultimately God, and went and did and lived as he saw fit with his love for the world and its things. And so when the son comes back, they celebrate. This is the son of mine was dead. That, that is a true statement of the condition of the familial relationship. The sword had come. Death, definitionally, by the way, is separation, of course, of the severest kind. And so the father identified that when the son rebelled and turned to loving the world and living a loose life of sexual immorality, he died. This son was promiscuous with prostitutes, as confirmed by verse 30 and was therefore dead to the family. He went off and lived a sexually immoral life, and therefore there was separation, because he couldn't have lived that way at home. He had to do that outside of the familial uh, bounds. That is actually proper. That is correct in how a Christian family relates to an adult family member who has rejected Christ and the family's biblical standards of morality. I've been talking about this some as well on Sunday nights. It's the same with the church family. That is not a denial of compassion. And that's a, a, a concerning element of where Pastor Beg has gone. He, he has taken, I think, a wrong view of compassion, but compassion is his word nonetheless. And he has pit compassion against an idea, uh, almost ignoring the idea of a doctrine of separation. And it's the same with the church family. It, it's not a denial of compassion, And the story of Luke 15, showing the father figure as representing God's heart, shows that the father was looking for the son. It is not without compassion. It's longing for him to come back. It is being heartbroken when a child goes and lives an immoral life in rejection of the goodness of what the family has. In this particular situation, this poor grandmother absolutely has already compassion for her granddaughter. The transgendered person is in deep rebellion and confusion and sin, and it is proper to be compassionate, have sorrowful love for them, and long for them to come back and to be restored by repentance, by the return. But the father in the story here does not compromise the standard by killing the fatted calf and giving gifts of a robe and a ring while the son is entering into a gay or transgendered covenant. Or while the son is you know, being united with prostitutes and not, married, not being married at all and giving him a, a party and a celebration and wonderful gifts. No, the father rejoices when. The father rejoices over the son when he comes back to life. Until the son returns, the distance remains. The father doesn't go to the pigsty and sit in the muck in order to show him compassion. The compassion is realized when the son returns. The son recognized that his father was a good man. The son knew where his father stood. His son, the son knew who his father was. A man of integrity. A man who 
was a loving man. He knew that. But yet, there was that distance that was proper. But the testimony of the father and his integrity stood in the mind of the son and eventually became that which brought him to his senses. He understood, even the slaves have enough to eat in my father's house. Maybe if I go back, I could... I don't expect him to take me back, but maybe I could be a slave. The son came to his senses and he returned, and then compassion was able to be shown in rejoicing. It was spare no expense. It was forget about the other plans that we had for that fatted calf. Bring it now, kill it, and let's have a party. That Now the father lavishes gifts on his repentant son. That is what we rejoice in, and that is where compassion properly takes action in this situation. You can still have compassion while the sword is present, while there's division. There still is a longing and a a pursuit. We'll talk about an obedient and faithful pursuit of a wayward person, a, a sinner. It doesn't have to be a family member, just anyone anyone that you know, there is a proper way that compassion can be shown, but it is not going to be shown by compromise, not true compassion. Compassion is not opposed to separation. In fact, compassion comes because of separation needing to be maintained, because you understand the threat that that sinful, unrepentant person is under. You understand their their current condition and the future that awaits them if they do not repent and receive Christ. Now, it is entirely appropriate to maintain a posture of ready forgiveness and compassion for a lost family member. You are looking for, hoping for, praying for them to come to repentance because you do have sorrowful love for them. If you have opportunity to communicate or to see them publicly or to spend time with them in order to appeal to them and to evangelize them, of course you can do that. But we have to maintain that the doctrine of separation is also true at the same time. So you have to be wise that both realities, because the Bible is not contradicting itself, both realities can exist side by side. You can be compassionate and separated. And it's important that you cannot be yoked with them. You cannot do things with them that gives them approval and affirmation. You cannot celebrate their lifestyle in an affirming way. But that doesn't mean that there is zero relationship or that you can't speak with them or that you can't have some proper way to spend time with them. And we'll talk about that a lot more in a little bit. But we have to be able to uh, have the entirety of Scripture, not just a myopic, closed view of the situation, and make the, again, that, that emphasis that Pastor Begg admitted that he had was that he was thinking about the relationship above everything else. He was thinking about the the emotion and the feeling more than the truth that goes beyond just um, having good, uh, good cordial conversation and relationship um, with a, a unrepentant sinning family member. Well, that leads to the issue that the council is related to, and that is the attendance of a Christian at a gay or a transgendered wedding. First, where I want to start off with is what is marriage? 
And really, fundamentally, we, we have to admit and we have to recognize that marriage is a heterosexual union at its core. That is the fundamental condition that has to be met. It is heterosexual. We're going to talk in a a second about the nature of marriage and God's design, but it is at its core definition, heterosexual. It is a man and a woman. It is, marriage specifically, is the lifelong one flesh union of a man and a woman whom God has brought together in a covenant relationship for the purpose of mutual love, companionship, and the possibility of rearing children through conjugal relations as they reflect the image of Christ and his bride, the church. I'll just say that one more time. Um, it, It is the lifelong one flesh union of a man and a woman whom God has brought together in a covenant relationship for the purpose of mutual love, companionship, and the possibility of bearing children through conjugal relations as they reflect the image of Christ and his bride, the church. That is God's ordinary design and purpose in marriage. Gay marriage is not a marriage. By virtue of failing the fundamental uh, basic definition, because it is not heterosexual, it cannot even be a marriage. It does not meet those conditions. Now, there are other ways to marry. Uh, That is to meet the fundamental uh, requirements of marriage, but these other marriages do not meet God's original design and purpose. For instance, you can have polygamous marriage. It is a marriage between a man and multiple women. It can be, you can have a marriage between a woman and multiple men. It's just extremely rare, obviously. But polygamous marriage is marriage. And that's because it actually has the fundamental prerequisite of being a covenanted relationship between a man and a woman. It is marriage. The husband and the wives have covenant responsibilities and roles to play and commitments to keep. And though it is an improper marriage relationship, it is still recognized biblically as marriage. The same can also be said for adultery. This is marriage to more than one spouse, but only one at a time following divorce and while the former spouse is still living. So this is also a real marriage. It is recognized by God, but it is also improper marriage that does not follow God's design for marriage. And so it is understood to be sinful, but it is a marriage. So don't let anyone tell you that God doesn't recognize it. There's there's some misunderstandings out there. Um, There's some false ideas regarding that. Uh, we, we need to be careful of that, and that's uh, probably a bigger topic for another day, but I just want to confirm to you, it is real marriage, just not in accord with God's design. Um, so we have to be careful of how we speak of things, that it's not a real, that gay marriage is not a real marriage because it doesn't accord with God's design. Well, there's other marriages that don't accord with God's design, but it fails the fundamental test of w- what a marriage is, and it is, again, fundamentally a heterosexual union. Well, the next question we need to ask is, what is a wedding? Well, a wedding is a formal ceremony that unites two people in the covenant relationship of marriage. It is officiated by an authorized representative of a church or the state. Uh, It is both a religious and a civil or or legal or civil um, ceremony. 
By the way, I, I am opposed to abolishing marriage licenses from the state. Um, that that is not a solution to a, to gay marriage. Uh, some Christians, I think, are are misled on that. Um, marriage is not exclusively a spiritual thing, um, but it is a civil matter as well. It is it is important. Now, again, just because the state um, censures it or the state licenses it doesn't doesn't mean they are in charge of what it means to be married. Uh, we don't ask. It's not really about permission entirely. There certainly is civil elements to it, but um, it is it, it is both a spiritual and a civil thing. Um, so that, that's an important uh, element as well. A wedding, though, solemn, solemnizes and celebrates a marriage. That's what a wedding is doing. It, it is making a an official marriage, and it is also a celebratory uh, event. Also, a wedding is attended by guests of the couple being married who are supporting witnesses. More on that in a minute. Now, just because a gay wedding isn't actually a recognized marriage, okay, let's, I want to be clear on, on the, the different terms, just because a gay wedding isn't actually a recognized marriage before God, it is still a religious and formal celebration of a covenant union. Okay, so the wedding taking place is still a formal celebration. It is still religious, even if they're claiming to be atheists. It's still there. Still is a religious. There's no such thing as neutrality, right? So there is a God that they are serving. Um, they are anti-God, but the issue here is that it is a formal celebration of a covenant union. Uh, it, that's what the wedding is, even though the marriage is not recognized by God. It is, of course, at this time, recognized by the state, but that is not, again, what gives it its legitimacy. Gay and trans weddings are appropriating Christian marriage as a mockery. It is an appropriation. It is a false marriage, but it is a real wedding. One that, though, that is spitting in the face of God's order, his word, and his people. Okay, so it is a real wedding, but that real wedding is full of lies and blasphemies, and it is officially condoning immorality, and it is all solemnized and celebrated with friends and family who are there to lend their support and encouragement as participating witnesses. Well, now what does it mean to be a guest or to attend a wedding? Well, for the sake of of time, I'm not going to get into the history and the traditions of the wedding party, the groomsmen and the bridesmaids and so forth. I want to talk about the guests who attend the wedding ceremony, because that really is the most germane thing to the counsel that Pastor Beg gave to this grandmother, advising her that he thought she should attend the wedding as a guest. Well, first, guests are typically invited there by the couple that is getting married, and uninvited guests are sometimes called wedding crashers. But a guest is someone who is invited usually because of a relationship with one or both of the individuals getting married, and they are invited for the purpose of witnessing and providing their support for the couple. To be a wedding guest is by nature to be invited to support the marriage. Therefore, attending a wedding is automatically, without exception, it is your amen to the marriage. You are agreeing that this couple should be marrying each other by your attending. This is not debatable. This is not a mystery. There is not a question to that. There is no such thing as silently protesting a wedding when you are in attendance at a wedding. 
That's not a thing. Now, there used to be a formal part of a wedding liturgy that left open the possibility that someone had a reason to be there in order to object to the proceedings, right? If anyone has any reason why this couple should not be joined together in holy matrimony, let him speak now or forever hold his peace. Sounds familiar, right? And usually a person who would object would not be an invited guest, but they would crash the wedding legitimately and object, typically with the knowledge that one of the parties was perhaps already married to someone else, or that there was some indecency or fraud ongoing that could rescue the situation at the brink of serious covenant making. And so for the sake of of positive troublemaking, uh, it was uh, for the sake of rescuing uh, one of the parties or both of the parties or the community and the family from a terrible situation. And so if there was a, re- a good reason why this, this marriage should not take place, the opportunity to object was given. And that's obviously not done um, hardly at all anymore. Maybe some old um, style liturgies do include that. But uh, look, a marriage is a big deal. And if if you do not formally, verbally object at the wedding, what is the assumption? The assumption is that everyone there is in support of the union. Furthermore, I I, I do want to circle back to the formal, legal, and civil nature of a marriage covenant. A marriage is attested to, it is confirmed with the testimony of witnesses. You don't have to have a big wedding at all, but you do have to have witnesses. And I do want to tell just a, a brief story of someone that some of us uh, in our church know. And this particular gentleman, a professing Christian, wanted to um, wanted to have a, a, an addition to his uh, marriage. He wanted to uh, affirm the legitimacy of having a polygamous um, marriage. In other words, he was married and he wanted to marry someone else also. He didn't want to divorce his wife. He knew that was wrong, but he wanted, uh, he, he had the, the hots for uh, another young lady. And though his wife, of course, was not going to be on board with that, she didn't sign up for that. And this guy was out to lunch doing all this stuff in, in secret at, at, for the time. Uh, he decided that um, him and this young lady would go up into the mountains, and uh, while they were secretly away together, the two of them exchanged their vows, their expressions and commitments uh, of fidelity to each other, and uh, argued that they had married each other. And uh, just like the <laughs> just like the old classic movie, The Princess Bride, my favorite all-time movie, the best movie ever made, in my opinion, um, it never happened. Uh, that's a line from the movie, you know, never happened. You did not get married. You didn't say, I do. You didn't agree to the covenant in the, in the movie. Well, in this case, they said their I do's, but there was no, there were no witnesses. Uh, it was not a marriage. Uh, the witnesses play an important role. And so my, part of my point here is to point out something that, uh, Pastor Begg seems to have neglected is that when you are attending a wedding, you are an important participant in the proceedings. An attendee is a witness, and a witness is nece- and witnesses are necessary. 
And, and so you are actually a participant in the union uh, by your attendance. You are uh, giving your approval and, and you are witnessing in a formal way. And that's that's one of the reasons why when you sign a marriage certificate, um, the two witnesses are required to then sign the marriage certificate. It provides an officialness. It verifies that this was not just done by two people on their own being foolish or, or even if it's in different ways, it could be ineligible to be married or so forth. It, it doesn't work that way. You have to have approving witnesses. And, uh, and so when you have more than two witnesses, you have many witnesses in attendance that are acting in that, in that way, witnesses in approval. I think there was something else I wanted to mention here. I'm trying to see what I, um, if, if I move on or if I circle back to something that I was going to mention. Okay. Well, I'm not seeing it right now, so we'll just move forward. So those are important elements. What a marriage is, what a wedding is, and what does it mean to be a guest or someone who attends a wedding? Um, those are important distinctions to make. So we come back now to Pastor Begg's advice to this grandmother. He was trying to nuance his counsel by affirming, both for himself and for the grandmother, that in advance, the grandmother had already communicated that she opposes her grandchild's sinful choices. She opposed her grandchild's lifestyle and rebellious transunion. That had already been made clear. The sword had been brought. Separation between grandmother and grandchild had already taken place. And so that was uh, apparently a precondition that um, Pastor Beg wanted to make sure was there, that he, he acknowledges that a gay marriage is not a real marriage. He is opposed to transgenderism, uh, and so he wanted to make sure that this lady had properly com communicated that witness. But then he goes on to tell her that he thinks she should attend the wedding and adds further that she should also bring a gift. So listen, if you need to rewind this episode and note what I said earlier, it is impossible to be an attendee at a wedding and not be a supporter, not be one who is in approval, if you are silently present at the wedding. So if this grandmother decided to attend after previously expressing her disapproval, what would we call her attendance at the wedding? We would call that repentance. It would signal a change of mind. It would communicate a change of direction from opposition to approval. It would communicate the removal of the sword. It would communicate a change of direction from opposition to approval, from disappointment to celebration, from separation to amen. The attendance of the wedding cancels out your previous objection. This is what makes... Pastor Begg's counsel so disturbing and problematic. It, it doesn't matter if she previously had communicated her displeasure and disapproval. If she goes to the wedding, that is undone. She repents. It, it, it's not about this trying to maintain a relationship by surprise. Th that's just that's a manipulation. That, that, that is a... Try, a, a, trying to maintain a relationship by being clever. By attending the wedding, she's repenting. And so to try and go back to your objection after the wedding, 
would be disingenuous. It would be confusing, and it does not support one's integrity. And so this is why so many people have objected to Pastor Begg's counsel. He is trying to maintain two positions at once. He's trying to maintain his opposition to gay marriage and to transgenderism, but in this counsel, it's a blatant contradiction to his stated position. This is not about inconsistency. This is about flat-out contradiction. He doesn't see it that way, of course, but that's what it is, and that is why it is so seriously concerning. He thinks this is about being compassionate to a grandmother and about helping her to be compassionate toward her sinning granddaughter. But this issue is about Alistair Begg's major contradiction and his compromise and a fear of uh, fear for his continued faithfulness. Our hope is that this is just a blind spot, but his continuing to double down, his continuing to defend himself, and beyond that, he is turning his rhetorical guns with accusations about the character of his detractors uh, on, on others. The concern is really for Pastor Begg and where this is taking him. Uh, there certainly is concern for who will be affected by his counsel, but this is also concern for his continued fidelity uh, because of his hardening, because of how he is uh, turning on the defensive to now attack those who have criticized him. Well, let me be clear for our church family and for other Christians who hear this podcast. In summary form, really, gay marriage is not a marriage, but it is a real wedding. It cannot be attended in good faith by a Christian unless you are, to, are there to crash the wedding with your objections. Furthermore, I want to extend my counsel to you that you must not attend any marriage that is sinful or where you are not in support of the couple getting married. And I appreciated the example given by the gentleman from American Family Radio of a scenario um, where a man commits adultery on his wife with his secretary and then proceeds to divorce his wife and marry the secretary. This man in this scenario can imagine the situation that this person, this man, is your friend. Or maybe he's a family member and he invites you to this wedding. It is a real marriage, different than the gay marriage, and it is a real wedding, but it is clearly a sinful one and one that a Christian cannot biblically support. You must not go to that wedding either, uh, um, you must not go to that wedding either unless you have the courage to be a wedding crasher. Now listen, I'm not encouraging wedding crashing, but I'm also not against it either. If you have the courage to go and stand and declare your opposition and even to preach the gospel, you can do that. But the issue is your attendance means that you approve and that you are in support of the couple getting married if you attend that wedding and you do not crash it, if you do not oppose it. And you have to oppose it formally, verbally, actively, not not silence and, you know, say someone, actually, I'm really not uh, in favor of this. No, if you're in attendance and you're not publicly objecting, then you, by your presence, are affirming and in support. Now, I want to address Pastor Begg's uh, turning of, uh, or 
teaching, I guess rather, on Luke 15. He again picked Luke 15 as his self-defense message to address this matter to his congregation. And he used this passage really um, against his critics. Now we know that the punchline of the parable of the prodigal son is that the grumbling uh, of the older brother represents the Pharisees. Parable of the prodigal son is the last of three consecutive parables that Jesus gave in response to the Pharisees and scribes who were grumbling over the fact that Jesus received sinners and ate with them. They were arguing that Jesus was giving approval to sin by associating with sinners. And I'll explain that further also in a minute, but Jesus responded to their grumbling with the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And in each parable, there was something or someone of great value that was lost. It was pursued out of love, it was found, and it was rejoiced over. That's all three parables. And there was a celebration at the finding of what was lost. But the older brother and the pro- sorry, the prodigal son, who uh, the, the prodigal had returned, the older brother comes into the story, and he grumbled at all the fuss. He, he grumbled at the fact that there was a party for his brother who had been sleeping around with prostitutes and blew all of his money. Now that he had repented, the older brother is resenting the father's exuberant joy. And the older brother refuses to join the celebration. He proves that he did not have compassion for his sinful brother, that he had a lack of love for his brother who was restored. The older brother stands again for the Pharisees. They resented the sinners who Jesus rescued and saved and healed, and they did not like that Jesus was getting his hands dirty, so to speak, by interacting with and eating with sinners. But there is a huge difference between associating with sinners and being in approval and in support of sinners in their sin. This is what the Pharisees failed at. They, they made the wrong kind of distinction. And there is a big difference between eating lunch with a gay co-worker and going to his gay wedding. You have to be able to see this distinction. If we get this distinction wrong, we're going to have all kinds of problems. Jesus was eating with and talking to and spending time with notorious sinners and what was happening. They were listening to him. They were hearing his word. They were being converted. And of equal scandal to some, to some is the fact that Jesus shared meals with the righteous Pharisees. He would go into their house. They're the, they're the real bad guys, right? Uh, he would go into their houses and he would dine with hypocrites whom he opposed. But what's the difference? The difference is Jesus was a vocal teacher and evangelist. He was revealing who God is and was leading sinners to repentance He was actively pursuing the lost. He was finding them, and heaven was rejoicing over it. Jesus gave no approval to sinners. He was calling sinners to repentance. He met with human beings who were sinners, and the point of the prodigal is that he was dead and has come to life. He was lost and had been found. And if you are going to a gay wedding to crash it in the hopes of stopping it and declaring the gospel, knock yourself out. You, you can go. 
Just know that they may want to do to you what the Jewish leaders wanted to do to Jesus. That's why you have to do so with a sense of sobriety and courage and knowing what you're getting into. That's why a lot of people don't crash weddings. But we have to be able to distinguish between associating with sinners and giving approval to them. The Pharisees were clearly upside down in this department, and sadly it appears so is Pastor Begg. And this is... uh, this reminds me of John chapter 17. Jesus prayed in John 17, 14 through 19. He said, I have given them your word, speaking of the disciples and those who would follow them. I have given them your word, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. We do not get to leave the world. We do not get to sequester ourselves so that we can never be um, as the word Pastor Begg used, contaminated by, uh, by the lost and by sinners. We are not to be taken out of the world. We're not to be completely sequestered. The reality is we are to engage the world, to uh, spend time with sinners, to pursue them, to have conversations with them, to call them to listen to us as we give them the truth out of love. Uh, we, we just have to get this order correctly, that it does have to be according to the truth. There is already a separation. They're not of the world, but we have to be a people who are in the world making proper separations and proper associations. The associations are about the truth, they are about the gospel, and we are to love our neighbors who are in sin as we have compassion for them. But when it comes to the family and having unrepentant sinners— There's going to be separation, and we long for them to return. Now, I want to address Pastor Begg's insinuation about his critics. In his self-defense message on Sunday night from Luke 15, he suggested that his critics were being like the compassionless older brother who stood for the Pharisees and the scribes. Basically, he suggested that his critics were hostile to the notion of compassion for the lost, and that his critics, unlike him, were influenced by American fundamentalism and were legalistic in seeking to forbid Christians from attending gay and trans weddings. That's what he was doing. So this is not a soft-hearted, I've heard the arguments from other godly Christians who disagree and have real problems. This is saying my critics are the ones who are the problem. He relativized the notion of counseling as to make it whatever seems best, as if there was no absolute truth related to the situation, or as if the Bible is silent and we just have to do our best. Because he argued that, hey, if I am in a different counseling situation, I might give totally different advice. He just turned it into something that was relative, and since it's relative, and you can go to a gay wedding, and I'm saying you can go to a gay wedding, I'm just saying that there is faithfulness and unfaithfulness, there is truth uh, and there is error. And uh, for someone who is who has a ministry that's called Truth for Life, um, it's very important that the truth 
be applied in these counseling situations. And the reality is he's doubling down and going against pointing the guns at his critics saying, you're the problem. You're, you don't have compassion. And as long as you are motivated by compassion for him, then anyone who criticizes your decision is the heartless meanie. Pastor Bake suggested it was legalists who were opposing his counsel because we are establishing a rule or a prohibition when instead we need to be operating on principle. And remember, his overarching principle, again, is compassion. So since compassion is the trump card, compassion is chief, uh, then if compassion is the motive, then you can go to a gay wedding. It somehow overrules every other principle, every other truth or teaching. And so Pastor Begg is painted as an opposition as heartless, legalistic Pharisees who have made a whole big thing out of his efforts at compassion. Well, brothers and sisters, this is, again, concerning. His hard-heartedness and blindness here does not bode well for him at this point. Um, he spoke about wanting to build bridges in this uh, effort to go to gay weddings. Um, that is the language of Andy Stanley. That's the language of the left. It doesn't mean that he's gone there, but it certainly uh, is a is a tip-off that um, perhaps he's headed in the wrong direction. So we need to... Um, we need to consider how we go forward with um, with Pastor Beg. Where will this take him? Uh, he has shown a significant chink in his armor. He, he, he's still alive. He's still fighting. He still has the sword, wielding hand. But uh, by analogy, his, uh, his other arm is barely hanging there. Um, his defenses are down, and uh, he, is, he is ripe for left-leaning demonic attacks. And so this brings me to the last part of our discussion for this topic. How should we treat this situation, and how should we think of Pastor Begg now? Well, the first thing I want to say in this regard is that I do sympathize with Pastor Begg. Uh, he has been a wonderful preacher and defender of the faith for a long time. Uh, he's 71 years old and has been a faithful shepherd at one church for 40 years, and that is to be commended. I don't know if what has been revealed has been more well-known to others in his ministry orbit, but as far as I'm aware, nobody really saw this coming. I do sympathize with him. I do have compassion for him because this is the nature of pastoral ministry. Anything you say can and will be used against you, uh, whether for right or for wrong. I mean, he even identified that he was sort of surprised that other things he said didn't catch as much heat, um, but perhaps um, he needs to understand who is bringing the heat now. They are his friends, and so that should concern him. Um, he does speak for a living, and we all stumble in many ways with our speech. That is part of why not many should become teachers, as James says. So this does go with the territory, but it is a weighty burden. And he is feeling the disappointment and the opposition from many sides right now. Uh, I could tell based on his demeanor in the short clip from his Sunday morning where he said he was going to address it Sunday night and not address it at that time. Uh, it just it seemed a bit, he seemed a bit dismayed uh, about all the negative attention. So we, we should pray for him as he is... He is really feeling low right now. Uh, we should also pray for his repentance and the softening of his heart. Uh, second on this, uh, when it comes to our relationship to Pastor Begg, the first thing I would say is that um, this one lapse in judgment does not take away from the last 40 years of ministry. 
I think we can be grateful for him, and we can listen to his sermons and read his books and have a discerning mind. We perhaps should have a little bit more of a of a caution listening to some of the things um, that he has said in the past. Perhaps there's things we, we maybe wouldn't have seen that might have been hinting at where he has gone to now, but um, the concern that we have really primarily is for his ministry moving forward. And, um, you know, if this continues to demonstrate hardening, or perhaps we see a slide further into error, um, this can certainly have detrimental effects on his ministry. Uh, he may become someone who we we steer clear of going forward, but I think we need to be patient as time will tell. We're, we're still early in this. Um, there is a lot of information out there um, from his own his own words. That's really what we're taking and his own actions. So, um, but we do want to give this time. Um, hopefully that he will be convinced and persuaded by uh, other godly men in his life, um, uh, others who will try to show him the error of his of his thinking and his counsel. And, and we want to, we want to see him soft-hearted and return and repentant. Um, but the first two weeks of this controversy just don't look good for him at this point. Uh, time will tell. And so we'll, uh, we'll continue to pray for him. I do think Shepherd's Conference coming up. So this is going to be sort of a, um, maybe a slow boil for a little bit. Um, right now it's a rolling boil, but it, it's, it'll simmer it down a little bit. Uh, but this is going to go through March because he, uh, for the first time in a long time, is a guest speaker at Shepherd's Conference. And um, I can't see him getting out of Shepherd's Conference without having to address this head-on in some form or fashion. I, I just don't, I don't think that this elephant in the room would be able to be ignored. Uh, and I don't know what he would do there. Uh, he might continue to defend himself. Um, maybe he would be, uh, I, I, I don't know. The other element to that is he could end up not going to Shepherd's Conference. That, that could come to an end. Uh, that could come on his own um, based on various things. Maybe he would decide that he, he didn't want to. Um, it could be an issue of being disinvited or anticipating what he might um, unexpectedly face that he is not prepared to or doesn't want to face. So we'll see what happens. I'm not sure exactly what that's going to happen. But it will be a continuing topic and uh, through the beginning of March at least. So we need to continue to pray for him um, in this matter. And uh, it's really disappointing because um, we've all, or many of us, have had a great appreciation for him. So let's uh, let's be in prayer for him and, and not write him off. Let's have compassion in our hearts. Let's long to see him return and, um, and watch our own hearts and attitudes. Uh, I also think that uh, it would be valuable for you to pray for me. Uh, and also the elders as we shepherd, as we try to do our best to be faithful. Um, we don't want to go into error in this in any type of similar way um, or other way. And we also want to be uh, soft-hearted to the truth and um, be careful about these things. So pray for us. Uh, we always need to watch ourselves lest we, uh, lest we also fall. So pray that God preserves us and keeps us as well. Well, that is all the time that we have for Truth Today, and I want to thank you for joining us, and uh, until next time, we hope that you will grow in your love and commitment to Christ and His Church. As we are sanctified in the truth, God's Word is truth. Truth.